Hey everybody! You are listening to the Creative BioLabs podcast, the show that introduces the basics about stem cells and their broad applications. Please contact us if you have any questions or suggestions. And don't forget to subscribe to follow the latest updates. Dear friends in the audience, you are welcome to listen to our program on time every Saturday night. The sharing guest we invited today is still the lovely Dr. Benjamin Smith, a famous editor of scientific journals. Let's welcome him with your warm applause. Why don't you say hello to our audience at the very beginning, Dr. Smith? Good evening, all dear followers of this podcast. Good evening, Connie. It is quite nice to see you again. Thank you for your kind invitation. I am truly looking forward to being here every week. Dear listeners, please allow me to briefly review for you the main points of the last program. Taking the mouse as an example, the mammalian embryo undergoes several important stages of pre-implantation development. First, after fertilization, the two parental pronuclei fuse to form a zygote. Then, the zygote cleaves to form a two-cell, four-cell, and eight-cell embryo turn, which is compacted to become a smooth, spherical structure known as the morula. Subsequently, the blastocoelic cavity develops on one side of the embryo to form an early blastocyst and enlarges to occupy most of the expanded blastocyst. The inner cell mass and trophectoderm that develop from the morula further develop into the embryo proper and extraembryonic tissues. Around embryonic day 4.5, the late blastocyst reaches the uterus, hatches from the zona zona pellucida, and is ready for implantation. In addition, we discuss the developmental potency of an early mouse embryo. Briefly, an important conclusion is that the inner cell mass before the 64 cell stage remains totipotent. Where do we begin today? I would like to start by introducing genes that are important during pre-implantation mouse development. Before implantation, an embryo is relatively self-sufficient. It can develop in vitro in simple culture media without growth factors supplements. Genes that are particularly important during pre-implantation development are involved in regulating several processes. For example, embryonic genome activation, genomic DNA demethylation, chromatin remodeling, the cell cycle, compaction, cavitation, and hatching. However, only a relatively small number of mutations, such as specific gene deletions, insertions, and broader genetic abnormalities, have been reported to cause pre-implantation lethality. The initial presence of maternal transcripts in the zygote may cause maternal rescue effectively. Would using knockout technology to remove the maternal transcripts reverse this result? Indeed, the removal of specific maternal transcripts from the zygote using traditional knockout techniques is not always feasible, as the lack of candidate genes often results in lethality before adulthood. However, an increasing number of maternal effect genes involved in pre-implantation development have been identified. Interestingly, most of the genes transcribed during pre-implantation development are detected immediately after embryonic genome activation. They will continue to be transcribed and then lead to the accumulation of mRNAs. Thus, post-transcriptional regulation may play an important role during pre-implantation development in order to trigger different specific developmental events. 
As we talked about before, embryonic stem cells are derived from the inner cell mass. Not surprisingly, then, these cells express common genes. What should we learn about these genes? Among these genes, some are described to be required for maintaining the undifferentiated phenotype of embryonic stem cells. They may play an important role in the segregation of pluripotent inner cell mass from differentiated trophectoderm cell populations. However, most of these genes appear to be essential during the period of implantation or gastrulation when deleted in mice, as opposed to the pre-implantation period when both inner cell mass and trophectoderm are formed. The most relevant in this regard are the genes for leukemia inhibitory factors and their corresponding receptors. Indeed, mouse embryonic stem cells are highly dependent on leukemia inhibitory factors to maintain pluripotency in culture. However, deletion of neither receptor nor ligand genes does not seem to affect the pluripotency of the cell mass within the blastocyst stage. Unexpectedly, in vivo leukemia, inhibitory factors signaling seems to be important for the regulation of implantation. I have learned that POU transcription factor octomer binding transcription factor 4, October 4th for short, is most prominently characterized in the potency regulation in the mammal. Could you please tell us more? Sure. Initially, October 4th is expressed by all blastomeres, but as the blastocyst forms, expression becomes restricted to the inner cell mass. Thereafter, October 4th appears transiently upregulated in inner cell mass cells that differentiate into primitive endoderm. The expression levels of October 4th in mouse embryonic stem cells interestingly also regulate early differentiation choices that mimic events in the blastocyst. Specifically, mouse embryonic stem cells lacking October 4th tend to differentiate into trophectoderm while a twofold increase in October 4th expression results in the formation of endoderm and mesoderm. October 4 deficient mouse embryos fail to form a mature inner cell mass and die at implantation. Are there any other genes described as being involved in cell fate determination during pre-implantation development? Yes, they include Tobnus, BMYB, Nanog, CDX2, and EMS. TOBNUS has been proved a novel gene essential for the survival of pluripotent cells of early mouse embryos. BMYB is broadly expressed in rapidly dividing cells of developing or adult mammals. NANOG codes a new member of the transcription factors whose functions are essential for maintaining self-renewal. CDX2 is a part of the Parahox gene cluster and is present in most vertebrate species. The expression product of EOMS, EOMS Soderman, is a transcription factor of the T-box family closely related to T-bet known for its role in CDA T-cell and natural killer cell differentiation. TOBNUS and BMYB homozygous deficient mice can develop into normal blastocysts. However, at implantation, TOBNUS null inner cell mass cells undergo massive apoptosis and the embryo becomes a mass of trophoblast cells. In BMYB knockout mice, the inner cell mass also degenerates. Thus, TOBNUS and BMYB appear to be required for inner cell mass survival. 
Nainog is expressed only in inner cell mass. October 4th prevents trophectoderm differentiation and Nainog prevents inner cell mass differentiation into primitive endoderm. Consistently, Nainog null causes differentiation of the derivative inner cell mass in cultures into endoderm. In contrast, embryos lacking CDX2 and EMs die soon after implantation because of defects in the trophectoderm lineage. What events are involved in the formation of the mammalian embryo from implantation to gastrulation? Upon arrival in the uterus, the blastocyst hatches from the zona zona pellucida and the trophectoderm cells express integrins that allow the embryo to bind to the extracellular matrix of the uterine wall. The mouse embryo attaches to the uterine wall through the mural trophectoderm cells of the abembryonic region and is tilted slightly. The human embryos, by contrast, bind through the embryonic region. After attachment to the uterus, trophoblast cells secrete enzymes that digest the extracellular matrix in order to infiltrate and start the uterine invasion. At the same time, the uterine tissue surrounding the embryo is subject to the decidual response. This series of changes include the formation of spongy structures called deciduum in mice and decidua in humans. Vascular changes that result in the recruitment of inflammatory cells and endothelial cells to the implantation site and apoptosis of uterine epithelium. Overall, compared to the general developmental steps in the pre-implantation stage, the mechanism of mammalian embryo implantation is species-dependent. Furthermore, the close and highly regulated crosstalk between mother and embryo makes mammalian implantation a complex process. How do the changes in the uterine tissues affect the development of the embryo? For example, apoptosis that occurs in the uterine wall helps trophectoderm cells to invade the deciduum by phagocytosis of dead epithelial cells. The mural trophectoderm cells at around embryonic day 5 stop dividing but maintain their DNA endoreplication and then become primary trophoblastic giant cells. Such cells are joined by polar trophectoderm cells that migrate around the embryo and then become secondary trophoblastic giant cells, known as polyteen. However, other polar trophectoderm cells keep diploid and dividing. They are going to generate the ectoplacental cone and the extraembryonic ectoderm, which pushes the inner cell mass into the blastoderm cavity. In the presence of fibroblast growth factor 4 and heparin, these proliferative trophectoderm cells produce trophoblast stem cells capable of self-renewal or differentiation into trophoblastic giant cells. What else about tissue formation and movements after implantation of the mouse embryo? During implantation, the rate of cell division in the embryo increases, resulting in rapid growth. The primitive endoderm layer forms two subpopulations that are both extraembryonic tissues, the visceral endoderm and the parietal endoderm. The visceral endoderm surrounding the extraembryonic ectoderm consists of columnar epithelium, whereas the visceral endoderm cells surrounding the epiblast are more flattened. Besides, visceral endoderm is a polarized epithelium that is closely related to the extraembryonic ectoderm and inner cell mass or epiblast, which is heterogeneous. When cultured, 
The primitive or visceral endoderm is also capable of generating a self-renewing stem cell population of extraembryonic endoderm cells. Visceral endoderm contributes to the formation of a visceral yolk sac later in development, but some visceral endoderm cells may eventually be intercalated in the definitive gut. In addition, parietal endoderm cells migrate in large numbers as single cells on the trophectoderm and secrete large amounts of extracellular matrix, forming a thick basal membrane called Reichert's membrane. Together with trophoblast giant cells and Reichert's membrane, the parietal endoderm cells form the parietal yolk sac. How does the mouse inner cell mass develop? The inner cell mass is located between the extraembryonic ectoderm, derived from trophectoderm, and the visceral endoderm, derived from primitive endoderm. It is responsible for generating all the cells of the embryo proper. During implantation, the inner cell mass organizes into a pseudostratified columnar epithelium also known as primitive or embryonic ectoderm, epiblast, or egg cylinder, which surrounds the proamniotic cavity. Signals from the visceral endoderm or the extraembryonic ectoderm, such as bone morphogenetic proteins, are responsible for the apoptosis in the core of the epiblast, causing cavitation. Around embryonic day 6, the proamniotic cavity expands to the extraembryonic ectoderm to form the proamniotic canal. What happens to the embryonic cells after implantation? A wave of de novo DNA methylation occurs after implantation and results in epigenetic reprogramming. In embryonic and extraembryonic lineages, this reprogramming affects the entire genome to varying degrees. And, it may be responsible for the observed loss of the ability to contribute to chimeras. In addition, Embryonic cells divide faster after implantation and then grow rapidly. For example, at embryonic day 4.5, the inner cell mass consists of about 20 to 25 cells. At embryonic day 5.5, the epiblast has about 120 cells. And at embryonic day 6.5, it consists of 660 cells. So, at embryonic day 6.5, what shape does the embryo take? At embryonic day 6.5, the embryo already has a long axis and a short axis, but is not cylindrical. Gastrulation begins with the formation of a morphologically visible primitive streak structure, which marks the posterior side of the embryonic future. Unexpectedly, the primitive streak forms on the side of the short axis. However, the embryo undergoes an apparent directional shift within the deciduum with the primitive streak terminating on one side of the long axis. Can you be specific about the tissue formation and movements during the gastrulation? Sure. Overall, during gastrulation, three definitive germ layers are formed, the germ line is set aside, and the extraembryonic mesoderm facilitating the visceral yolk sac, placenta, and the umbilical cord is formed. The gastrulation extends to the distal tip of the embryo as more cells enter through the streak. The extraembryonic mesoderm pushes the embryonic ectoderm upward to the center as the newly formed embryonic mesoderm moves distally and laterally to enclose the entire epiblast. The extraembryonic mesoderm develops lacunae, forming a cavity lined by the mesoderm, 
called the exocolum. The exocolum enlarges so that the tissues bordering the extraembryonic mesoderm and the embryonic ectoderm fuse, dividing the proamniotic cavity in two and forming the amnion and chorion. The layer of extraembryonic mesoderm and the visceral endoderm together form the visceral yolk sac. Subsequently, the elantois and primordial germ cells form at the posterior side of the embryo. Wow, I feel suddenly enlightened. So much for our content today. I have learned a lot. Let's thank Dr. Smith for his wonderful scientific sharing. Thank you for listening. There will be more interesting topics waiting for us in the next program. See you next time. Thank you. I hope we will see you next time.